the quartets tonight. Hi, Mark. Good to see you. Good to see you. Any prayer requests? My brother, Scott. He's being <laughs> Is that what we should pray for? Yeah. What's his name? Scott. Scott. <laughs> Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, <coughs> the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, for your presence through the day, for all the many ways you call us to you, most especially now in this um, Easter season. Um, I'd like to ask for a special blessing on all of us to carry forward our, our efforts to discipline ourselves um, during Lent. <coughs> Um, but to do it in a spirit of a greater joy. Um, help us all to carry with us a deep down gladness, rejoicing. Um, sometimes I think we expect so much if we don't see miraculous changes, we act like they, they don't take place when they so often do and they're just small. Help us to be grateful for the little rebirths, the little changes. <coughs> that we make year by year. You took on a cross all at once. The, the anguish, had, the pain had to be excruciating. You ask us to discipline ourselves year by year to take on a milder kind of cross. Um, what a great mercy. Help us to do that um, and rejoice. Um, let everybody's hearts be enlightened, be glad for all that we have in this world, to put any darkness away. Um, even when there are serious losses for any of us. Um, I have special prayers, special grace for Christopher and Kayla, for Tom and Linda and their daughter Megan, help her, for um, Bob's daughter, Sue, watch over her, um, protect her, um, help her to find her way, um, be with Tracy and Madison, Watch over that young woman. Um, difficult time. Um, and for Mark's brother, um, I'd help him come to his senses. Um, I'd like to ask the same prayer for Mark. <laughs> we trust that you have a sense of humor. We know you do. The world is full of ironies. Help us to be open to them, um, to be glad. So often, the, the words in the Mass, to always and forever be thankful. Help us to do that, particularly in, in the face of suffering for any of us. Um, I want to offer a special um, prayer for everybody. Um, um, the great gift, I hope that we, I know that we've been to each other in this time together. The learning that we've done, the experiences that we've shared. Um, help us to take what we learn from these books and um, live them, bring them to life in our own lives. Um, otherwise, um, a waste. Um, 
Open our eyes, help us to see more deeply. Open our hearts that we can love better than we do. Help us to put to work the wisdom that these poets have given us. Ask, um, offer all these prayers. Oh, yeah. For watch over Jesse, receive him into your kingdom, um, wash away his sins. If there is a time in purgatory, <laughs> it's hard to believe he won't be there with the sense of humor about all that's going on around him. Um, um, let our prayers speed him and um, whatever lies ahead, um, but let him know the joy of being with you. Um, you offer all of us a great mercy in the face of our weaknesses. Um, help us to always hold that in our hearts. So we offer these prayers in your name, to Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, T.S. Eliot, let's finish. We were a week behind, so tonight I'm going to read the last two sections because it makes no sense to hold this over. So we're going to read two sections tonight and put the four quartets away, okay? And I'm not going to make any comments. I've been um, doing it um, all along. Um, just one general comment, and that is here at the end, you're going to hear lines that recall lines that we've been hearing through each of the quartets, Bert Norton, um, Little Gidding, Dry Savages, um, um, what's the one I'm missing? East Coker. So in, in one way, remember that the, the, the center theme of the four quartets is the still point, this point of rest that God doesn't desire, God loves. He's, he's complete in who he is and he offers that love to us our understanding is that um, as we enter into that love, our desires quiet and we learn to love the way Christ did, the way he taught us and what God does. So the still point is the center of all of these different actions, these different motifs. Um, but here at the end, you're going to hear Eliot um, use lines that take us back to Bert Norton in the garden, remember? Um, quick now, here now, went into the garden, looked into the pool, could hear the laughter of the kids, the birds, the flowers. Um, each of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, in each of the different quartets. Um, the different conversations, the going back to the past, and all of these ap apophatic moments, th these, these moments where Eliot's describing something that really can't be known. It's a way of asking us to realize, particularly if we carry Christ. If we go to the communion and take Christ into us, we, we can't any longer just think of ourselves in terms of getting from here to there, from here from church to the car. If Christ is in us and the kingdom is in us and about us, to, to think that, that we always know things with that kind of certainty, go to the car and go home, it's a little bit foolish because there's some way in which we step into a space that we don't completely understand. A different space, a different time. And that's why Eliot keeps saying, there's the dance, I don't know where, in my end is my beginning. You know, all the way through he's been using these phrases, in England now and always and nowhere. 
it's, it's to help us experience this sense that we're never quite sure where we are, but we know we're on a journey. And it's a way of helping us to allow some quality of mystery to have its place in our lives. Because we live in an age, you, we all know this, we live in an age, a scientific age, in which we want to be certain about everything. The mind knows. The more we know something, the more we think we have power over it, control. Elliot is constantly taking us out of that space. So, Can you just come in with this one, please? A little getting. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, so, as I read this last two sections of Little Gidding, just remember that you'll be hearing phrases, lines, images from the earlier quartets because he's bringing it all to a rest. Remember, the, the ultimate end is that rest that's still part. Okay, section, section four. Section four. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the last two because we're short a week. Section four. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharged from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Either we stay in the fire of our lusts, the desires that so burn us that we want so much, we constantly want. We either choose that and get consumed by them, frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned, or purified. But the choice is fire. And remember the last, the last um, ledge in Dante's Purgatorio before he entered the heavens was the circle of the lustful and it was ringed by fire. Before Dante could go up to the <coughs> earthly paradise, he had to pass through that wall of fire. <coughs> it was a rite of purification. That's our choice. Um, the only hope or, or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre. We can't escape it, one or the other. Um, lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Sorry, I wasn't going to do this, but... Remember the, the lines of being, in, in my beginning is my end? And I, I said that that's a quote from Mary Queen when she was going to her execution, because she knew that even though um, she was facing the end of her temporal existence, that was the beginning of her real life. In my beginning, in my end, is my beginning. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from, and every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others. The word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and the new. The common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic. The complete concert dancing together, every phrase 
and every sentence is an end and a beginning. <laughs> to strike. I have to say this. In heaven, there won't be any problem with punctuation. <laughs> you know that every, every quartet that we've read from Eliot has a section devoted to the word, the struggle with language. Because without words, we have no way, none, none of communicating our experiences to each other. So the, the importance of words isn't small, and for Eliot, as we know, our use of words looks to the analogy with the word. In heaven, there, there will not be any ungrammatical sentences, um, any dangling phrases. There will be nothing spoken there that won't be poetry. So it can't be any other way. So Fogner won't be there? Hmm? will be there, and, and he will be surrounded by blossoms and flowers, Mark. Um, and, and light, and light, luminous light everywhere. Just remember, I mean, there nothing in heaven, to we have faces, whatever takes place there will be in terms of poetry. It can't be any other way. <coughs> Everything will be harmonious. We, um, we, we know from Paul and the letters and from things that Christ said that, that with the, um, the, the, the resurrection, the final res resurrection, when our bodies return to us, that, that there will be a perfection unlike anything we've ever known in this world. Everything will be more perfect than it was here. We will have a new body. There will be a glow. We, see, we saw this in Dante. There will be a radiant body. Everything will be changed. Um, there will be nothing there that doesn't express a perfect beauty or harmony, and that will be so of our words. Whatever we say to each other will have a glory and a light. One of the reasons for poetry, I've been saying this from the beginning, is to help us enter into that, to get a, an intimation of it here. So it's not an accident that in every one of the quartets, Eliot keeps returning to this theme of poetry, what we do with words, how we use them. And every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, and easy commerce of the old and new, how will it be? Can anything be said in heaven that won't be at home? There will be nothing said there that won't be familiar, warming, welcoming, hospitable, generous. An easy commerce of the old and new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete concert dancing together. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. Every poem and epitaph and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start. We die with the dying. See, they depart, and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment in the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, 
We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of the earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known, because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown, not of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. I can't, I mean, you could do a paper on that last word. All of the quartets ends on that word, one. It's not an accident, because that's the unity of the kingdom of God. I mean, all, all individuals, everybody will be together. You know, Paul's image of the one body, the head, all will be one. Everybody will be in perfect unity. Our faith calls us to that unity here. It will be perfect there. And all should be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. I encouraged all of you, you know, um, to periodically. Um, I've always found it comforting to turn to the Psalms, sometimes in the evening, to just pick up a Psalm and read it to quiet myself. I look at the Eliot's quartets as along those lines. I'll pick up a quartet and read it. I would encourage all of you to read it because it's a voice in our time. You know, he's speaking. In our time, he's speaking for us, um, but he has the kind of quiet and calm that I think we find in the Psalms. They're very prayerful, they're meditative, they bring us to our world, but they offer us a way of looking at our world that most people don't see. So, we did the four quartets. Um, by the way, I, I forgot to say this first. Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. I forgot, sorry. Okay. Okay, here's where it gets tricky. Two brief comments before we look at Two We Have Faces. I just want to do a very quick review of Two We Have Faces, and then I'm going to do a ridiculously quick overview of everything we've done, if such a thing can be done. Two things to keep in mind at this point. Um, I, I've said this before, I'm deeply, deeply grateful to have done this with you guys. It's been a wonderful thing for me to go back, particularly at this time of my life, uh, when I didn't see myself back in a classroom again. Um, at this point, looking back, all of you, all of you are in a position to to know, be aware, that you carry a rich tradition in you now that you didn't have before. And it's one with our faith. Um, um, John Paul in Fidia Ratio called us, the whole church, to do everything it could to bring faith and reason together. And I think most of us know that finding a balance between the two of those is really hard. People in the church, I think, um, 
keep faith and reason in separate compartments. You know, the intellectual life is somewhere out here. It should be. Anyway, one of the pleasures for me is that knowing that all of you, those of you who have done this from the beginning, now carry within you a rich tradition. You've got the Greek world, the Roman world, the medieval world, the Renaissance world. You've got the crisis in 19th century. You've got modernity in your hearts. So you, you have an awareness, not in terms of ideas, not in terms of ideas, not a small thing for me, not in terms of ideas. You carry it in as lived experience. You went on that journey with Ishmael. Um, you lived with Portia when she made that court defense. You had to suffer with Hermione when she had her husband accuse her of adultery. We've gone through these things as experience. <laughs> and you've tackled Faulkner when Ike read the, when the, uh, the ledgers and discovers that his grandfather committed um, misogyny and then committed incest that led to the suicide of the woman that he had sex with. So we've experienced every kind of horror. It seems to me we've not turned away from a horror. I can't think. Iago brutally abused everybody in that play. There is not a horror. We read Dante. There's, there's, there's nothing we haven't looked at in the way of horror. To go into the depths of the inferno is to see the worst things about ourselves. Horrible. Bring it up till we have faces. What, what Oriol has to face is how ugly she is inside. When her father, sternly, that's the word I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, Tom, without, I'm saying, without that father's sternness, would she have gone to the mirror? He takes her to the mirror and says, look, who's ungut? It's the first time in her life when she has to look at herself as she is and, and realize she's ugly. I don't think any of us can go on in the spiritual life without going into those depths and saying how awful these sins. I've said it before, I don't think we clear in the depths of our sin until we real acknowledge we killed God. That's how deep they are. So in, over the course of the work that we've done together, we've had to look at every conceivable kind of horror in our own human hearts. And I, I'm not, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taught a work. I, I'm, we've not done a work that hasn't answered those horrors. I would not have put it out here because I, don't, I, I believe those things are awful. We have not read a work in which every one of those sins hasn't been answered by a grace greater than it. So we're at a point of looking back over a couple of years and, and speaking for myself, and I hope for you all, that what, a, what an extraordinary gift to carry our the depth of our humanity, both in its sinfulness and its openness to grace, forward in our lives. Hopefully what that will do for our faith, for all of us. Um, that's one. The second um, other comment is this, that interesting, if you put all of the works together, if you go from the Iliad to, to all the works that we've done, I'll, I'll come to them in a minute, I'll look at each one of them individually, but if you start with the Iliad and go forward to two we have faces, you can, you can mark out a pattern that the whole ancient world was doing everything it could to struggle to get into the interior. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. They didn't have any way into it. It's, in, it's implied, it's intimated, but it's not there. When Christ comes and he says, you heard that committing murder is, I tell you, if you have a thought that way, You've heard it said that committing adultery is, I'm telling you, if it's in your mind, 
The whole value of Christianity is to turn into a pur purification of our inner character, to get past appearances, because to our world, we can seem okay. The more gifted we are, the greater the dangers. We can think we're okay. The whole direction of Christianity is into the interior, and Paul makes that clear after Christ. If you look at the literature, it's from a preoccupation with external things, seeing things outside, into the interior. Until we get to two, we have faces, and what we see until we have faces is Christ is in the soul. Yeah? The anima naturalite Christiana. The naturally human soul. Psyche is in, Psyche's Oriole sister. She's a character in her own right. Yeah? but she's also an image of the Christ-bearer in her own soul. So we've moved from a world that tends to value things outwardly, success, money, booty, prestige, accomplishments, into a world um, in which Christ, into we have faces, in which Christ is bearing our sins. I mean, that was the whole direction of to we have faces, what, what she experiences when she looks on the murals, okay? So just to brief overview, how wonderful it is to have a tradition to deepen our sense of how rich our human nature is, particularly at a time in history when so much is going on to debunk it, to shrink us, like the, you know, remember the shrunken figure in O'Connor's um, Heart of the Park? How, how rich this, our human nature is, that, that we're capable of suffering um, the awful extent of our sins and also capable of receiving grace in them. And all of this we know from Christ was ultimately directed towards the next life where we're invited to share in his divine life because when he goes back to heaven he takes our human nature transfigured by something divine. So we know what, what awaits us in the next life is not the human life as we know it now, but something <coughs> transfigured, glorified, new body, new light. So this great richness that, that we receive from our tradition and all in the direction of this, these changes that take place within us. So um, just, those are just two general um, thoughts about what we've been doing together. I want to look at two we have faces just very briefly. Um, but any thoughts before we go on or questions or comments or? One of the questions that I want to keep in, in, um, in front of us with every work that we look at is where's Christ? Did we see him? Where was he? Um, are we aware of him? Okay. Um, <coughs> let me look, let's look together at two we have faces. This is just going to be a, a very quick review. We've already done it, so I don't want to, I don't want to spend much time on it. But let me, let me just briefly summarize what we did leading up to the, to the experience that Oriole has when she's there at the garden chapel and she looks at the murals on the wall. Um, and then try to straighten out, I think, a confusion I, I left you with um, when we left last time. But remember, um, her father dies, she, she becomes queen. <coughs> 
she begins to bring a practical spirit to her, her rule um, of the kingdom that her father lacked, and, and she makes all these improvements in the mind, giving people their freedom. Um, she offers Fox his freedom. She does all she can to be a more prudent ruler, and she's successful at it. And she reaches a point in her life where things settle, and I think she feels enough security in what she's doing to take a trip, and she takes that trip. And it's on that trip, when she comes to that forest chapel and, and comes inside, and the, and the priest there um, tells her the story of the god on the altar, and she gets really angry because the, the story that he tells her doesn't quite fit with her own story. Um, and there's those passages where um, I, I talked about them that remember that um, Lewis, Charles Williams, and that Inkling group had this, this sense that the best stories um, were best by virtue of the fact that they always tapped into s some universal truth, that they were a part of the story, the story. And the story would have been God creating the world and Christ redeeming it. That's at the center. So when you look back at the ancient myths, you get intimations of that long before Christ came into the world. It's, it's strange. It's one of the truths that we looked at with all the early epics. The, the very best stories had this mythopoeic character. That they're in, they're in touch. They're rooted in these ancient myths and so take us to a deeper truths than most other stories. And Oriol is really offended when she hears that story because it doesn't square with her own. So she goes home um, um, with the idea in mind of accusing the gods of being dishonest and lying. So she sets out to write this complaint. She's going to take the gods. It's God in the dock. She's going to take God to court. Um, she begins to write, and um, shortly after she begins her writing, she, she has two revelations. The first one, you remember, is from Taryn, because he's visiting, and he tells her that um, Redival um, felt lonely and abandoned. And it's, a, it's an awakening moment for Oriole because she realized that she's always thought that she was the one who was most lonely. To realize that her sister was also lonely was a, um, a real revelation. In one sense, it, it, it's the beginning of drawing her out of herself, that self-centeredness that so defines her life, that, um, that she realizes there are other stories and other sorrows. And the second one is when Bardia dies, she goes to console Ansit, and the visit she has with Ansit is cordial enough at the beginning, but then it gets bitter because Ansit confronts her with um, things that Oriol really never understood, and that was that Bardia gave up his life for her, and in some ways, without her knowing it, she actually took his life. Ansit's words were, you drank his blood, you devoured. And, and I talked about that, that we, we saw the importance of that at the end of the, at the, end of the um, Inferno in Dante, at how all of the images have to do with the Eucharist, it's a parody of the Eucharist, that if, um, if, if Christ is an image of the self-giving of God, offering himself and, and doing it as bread and wine for us, when we fail Christ, it will inevitably, inescapably, it can't have any other effect. It will be in terms of our actually using other human beings for ourselves. We will eat them. It was there in the Odyssey, it's here in this book. That, um, 
the choice is there. We either get, we either become the, 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 the words in the mass constantly, the homilies, we offer ourselves as bread and wine for others, or we end up using <coughs> others for ourselves. We feast on them. We use them. Even if we don't see it in terms of eating, that's what we do. We're using them. We're feasting on them. We're taking their life away. Um, that outrages her, and um, shortly after that, remember, she has the, the um, she goes into the temple for the annual celebration of the spring, right? And she encounters that peasant woman who speaks so highly of Ungat instead of the other beautiful idol. And when she comes out of that, um, she has that evening where suddenly in a dream, her father comes to her sternly and takes her into the um, pillar room and then begins to dig down. And we talked about that. I, I think my own sense of that is the, the significance of her going into those depths is that he has to take her to something prior to the city. Because we've talked about that, right? The city is the, it is what, the city comes into existence after Cain's exile. It's man attempting to live self-sufficiently on his own without God. We want, we want to be as God. So for him to go underneath that double layer and present her in, the, in that mirror is for her to look at herself as she actually is. And in that moment, she says, I'm hunger. And it seems to me that's, that is the, the pitch of the crisis of the novel that turns it right there. Because it's, for the first time in her life, she sees how ugly she is. She can't complain at other people, and she has to see herself. Um, and we know what happens. Um, then, after that, she, she goes to the river to take her life. Um, she can't. She comes back. Um, she has that dream of gathering the wool because she knows that the one thing that she has to do is make herself beautiful. And she knows how hard it is because she's seen herself as, as ugly at birth. <coughs> so she has that vision of gathering the wool, hoping to bring back beauty for herself. Um, and then there's that other um, episode, I think it's her um, interval of time, where she understands that the most important thing for her to do is to begin to die to herself. And, and she conceives of that in terms of the Socratic call to death. That all of us, all life for Socrates was a preparation for death. If we're not doing everything we can to prepare for death, somehow we're not living. That's the Socratic, it's part of the Socratic thing. So she goes through a period where she's doing everything she can to die to herself. And it's interesting, I'll, I'll look at the passages. If you, if you go back and look at the, the, the sequence of events, it's during that period where she, um, she, she recognizes that all the decisions that she gave had signs of wisdom, that people complimented her on what she's doing. But it, it, it's during life when, it's a period of her life when she, I, our sense of it is that she goes through this spiritually dry period. She's not happy. She, she can't answer the ugliness. She hasn't died. She's not in despair. Um, but there's some sense in which she almost has no meaning in her life, and yet she's learning to put herself away. She's making all these good judgments, um, but there's no spiritual uplift. It's just she's there. Um, and then there's that episode where she goes out in the garden with her book, 
And her description of it was, this was no dream. She walked into a vision. That's where she carries the book and, and she sees herself as having this bowl going into the deadlines and, she, deadlines and she has to bring back water from the deadlands. And it's there that the eagle comes and picks her up and takes her to the mountain. And um, it's then that she gives her judgment, okay? That's as brief as I can do it, okay? Now what I'd like to do is take a minute um, and look at the murals and then I've got a serious question. I think I got that right. Are there any questions about that? Okay. Okay, let's look at the, let's look at the murals. Um, I think it's 339, I'm not. <coughs> Remember, she, she presents her complaint to the gods. She presents her complaint to the gods. And suddenly the judge says, enough. And we realize, as she does, that if he'd not stopped her, if he'd not said stop, she would have gone on eternally. I, mean, I, I hope that's clear. That's an infernal condition. Yeah, that, that's what we saw in hell. She would have been in, she would have, she would have not come out of that herself. I hope that's clear to everybody. That's an infernal condition. She would have gone on and on and on and on. Justifying herself, feeling a victim, blaming the gods, and that's where she would have been until he says enough. She comes out, and then <laughs> the father has harsh words for her again, and she throws herself over. And the fox takes her, and then he takes her to that garden chapel and shows her the, the pictures on the mural. Okay, so on page 339. Um, the first mural shows Psyche tying her ankles and ready to jump in on page 340. She was not I, she was Psyche. I'm too old and I have no time to begin to write all over again of her beauty, but nothing less would serve. And no words have I would serve again then to tell you how beautiful she was. Interesting, she was always beautiful. This is so interesting. Undergoing a spiritual ordeal, a beauty is given to her, just by virtue of that fact. Some holiness, something enters her. Or had I forgotten? No, I could never have forgotten her beauty by day or by night for one heartbeat. But all this was a flash of thought swallowed up at once in my horror of the things she'd come um, to that river to do. Do not do it, she screams, she calls, she hauls us out. So it's Oriole who scream, stop psyche. The second picture, Fox led me to the next picture and it too came alive. What she sees there is Psyche sorting out seeds. And the interesting thing for her is that Psyche gives no sign of despair, none. And you know that when Oriole began to sort through her motives, like sorting piles of seeds, that it was a despairing act. At the bottom of 340, she was grave, her brow knitted, as I've seen it knitted over a hard lesson. When she was a child, and that look became her well, what look did not, yet I thought there was no despair in it. Then of course I saw why. Ants were helping her. The floor was black with them. Grandfather said, I, I did. Hush, he said, and takes her to the third. In the third, it's the, it's the scene of the rams, um, or you remember trying to, to get beauty from these 
giant rams. The, this is a play on the, and I think on Jason and the Golden Fleece, the, the capturing of the Golden Fleece, to bring back beauty because remember, she was despairing that because she was born ugly, she would never become beautiful, and if she never became beautiful, she wouldn't be saved. Um, the bottom of 341, then Psyche laughed and clapped her hands and gathered her bright harvest off the hedge. Because remember, the, the rams go through the thorn bush and, and the, the, the fleece <coughs> gets cut off and it's there to gather. In the fourth picture, Robert, yeah. they not only run through the thorn bushes, they're running toward this figure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the next picture, I saw both Psyche and myself, but I was only a shadow. We told, toiled together over those burning sands. She with her empty bowl, she with a bowl, I with a book full of my poison. Interesting, because remember, she had the book when she <coughs> entered that vision, but she saw herself as having a bowl. Um, going to get water from the, um, the deadlands. She did not see me, and though her face was pale, with a heart and lips cracked with thirst, she was no more pitiable than when I have seen her often pale with heat and thirsty, come back with a fox and me from a summer's day ramble on the hills. She was merry and in good heart. I believe, from the way her lips moved, she was singing. When she came to the foot of the precipices, I vanished away, for the eagle came to her and took her bowl, and brought it back brimful um, of the water of death. Um, at, the, at the two important lines that I don't want to miss at the bottom of 342, um, Oriole surprised that, that Psyche is happy performing these ordeals. Um, she was almost happy. Another bore nearly all the anguish. I, is it possible? That was one of the true things I used to say to you. Don't you remember? We are all limbs and parts of one whole. Remember Paul and all of Christ. You, everybody's aware of what I'm talking about. Paul's metaphor of the body. That we're all parts of a body with Christ as the head. And Christ himself, remember saying, I'm the head, you're the vine. We are all, we are all of one. We share in that unity with him. We are all limbs and parts of one whole, hence of each other. Men and gods flow in and out and mingle. Oh, I give thanks. I bless the God. How far away is that from anything Oriole said through the whole book? I hope everybody's hearing that I bless the gods. Because she's had nothing good to say about the gods from the beginning. Then it was really I, Fox, who bore the anguish, but she achieved the task. Would you rather have had justice? And now she goes to the last um, um, ordeal, the trial that um, Psyche faces. And here you remember, Psyche's carrying um, um, a casket at the bottom of 343. And now Psyche must go down into the deadlines to get beauty in a casket from the queen of the deadlands, from death herself, and bring it back to give it to Ungat so that Anga will become beautiful. Notice how all these figures are feminine. Anga, the queen of the dead. Um, Psyche herself. 
and bring it back and give it to Ungat so that Ungat will become beautiful. But this is, this is the law for her journey. If for any fear or favor or love or pity, she speaks to anyone on the way, then she will never come back to the sunlit lands again. She must keep straight on in silence till she stands before the throne of the Queen of Shadows. All is at stake. You remember what happened. She passes the rabble. The rabble, remember, looked at her as a, as a savior, as a goddess herself, and wanted her blessing. She has to go past them. They say, stay with us, bless us. Um, then she passes by Fox on 344 and 345. Um, the top 345, oh, psyche, psyche, said the fox in the picture. Stay in that other world. It was no painted thing. What folly is this? What are you doing wandering through a tunnel? <laughs> Here's the rationalist. This is the modern rationalist. Remember, the book was written to a Greek the modern rationalist who doesn't believe in these things. Now she's meeting Fox, who's been a temptation all her life, whether Roy, um, Oriole realized it or not. Um, it was no painted thing. What folly is this? What are you doing wandering through a tunnel beneath the earth? What? You think this is the way to the deadlands? You think the gods have sent you there? All lies of priests and poets. <laughs> he had to get that in. Child, it's only a cave or a disused mine. There are no deadlines such as you dream of, and no such gods. Has all my teaching taught you no more than this? The God within you is the God you should obey. Reason, calmness, self-discipline. Fie, child, do you want to be a barbarian all your days? I would have given you a clear Greek, full-grown soul, but there's still time. Come to me, and I'll lead you out of this darkness, God. Follow me, and I will bring you to safety. Back to the grass plot behind the pear trees where all was clear. She passes, and um, Nick, she passes by this woman trembling on 348 in the middle of the page. Um, and Oriol sees that it's herself. O psyche, o goddess, I said, never again will I call you mine, but all's here but all there is of me shall be yours. Alas, you know now what it's worth. I never wished you well, never had one selfless thought of you. I was a craver. She'd been over me, wait. Sorry, I skipped a bit, I knew that was wrong. Sorry, 346, sorry. I knew the thing that was there to entrap her and turn her head, turn her from the path. Um, Oreo was going, I said to myself, hurry, hurry past her. The woman held out her hand to Psyche, and I saw that her left arm dripped with blood. Remember, that's the injury Oriol gave herself in the palace. Then came her voice, and what a voice it was, so deep, yet so womanlike, so full of passion, it would have moved you even if it spoke happy or careless things. But now, who could resist it? It would have broken a heart of iron. O Psyche, it wailed, O my own child, my only love, come back, come back back to the old world where we were happy together. Come back to Maya. Psyche bit her lip till the blood came and wept bitterly. I thought she felt more grief that, um, wailing, than that wailing Oriole. But that Oriole had only to suffer. Psyche had to keep on her way as well. She kept on, went out of sight, journeying always further into death. That was the last of the pictures. I want to read one more line because it will bear on some of the things we do in a minute. On 347, towards the bottom, um, Oriol is acknowledging how much Psyche has borne for her. Um, she's feeling, I mean, 
the change that began when she looked at herself in the mirror with her father to this point is, is involved really a complete transformation. Um, she bore much for you then, you have borne something for her since. And will the gods one day grow this beautiful grandfather? They say, but even I, who am dead, do not yet understand more than a few broken words of their language. Only this I know. This age of ours will one day be the distant past, and the divine nature can change the past. Remember that, because we saw this in Dante. There is no past and future for God. So there's, there's nothing that's happened in the past that can't be redeemed. <coughs> the age of ours will one day be the distant past, and the divine nature can change the past. Nothing is yet in its true form. All things are under construction. They're being changed all the time. Um, and you know what happens after this. Um, Psyche comes, the two meet, and they look into the pool, and they both see Psyche. And it's clear that Oriole knows that Christ is coming, that the two of them almost fade in his presence. And she has this sense of being of overwhelming gratitude that she's been forgiven, that it's, it's been a, a, a washing, cleansing experience. I've only got one question here, and I think it goes back to what we were... Sue, correct me here if, if I'm... The sequence of events is after she leaves the Forest Chapel, she sits to, she's angry. She sits down to write her accusations against the. It's a formal courtroom document. It's a charge against the gods. And she presents it in court. Um, but then she has those revelations, and she has that experience with her father where she has to look in the mirror and see, admit that she's ugly. And it's in, remember, it's below the city. So she's not, she's not caught up in illusions, appearance of vanity. She's out of that world. She's seeing herself as she is. And it's after that that she tries to kill herself. So she starts writing. She tries to kill herself. She gathers the wool. She tries to die to herself. She tries to follow the Socratic teaching. And then she has that vision of going to the deadlines for the, deadlines for the water. I think that's the sequence. You left out the seeds, but yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, okay. Now, if I've got this right, when she looks at the pictures, so has everybody got that? Um, starts writing, suicide, and then the series of visions, the seeds. The starts writing and then the, the pillar room. Right, she's, yeah, starts writing, sees herself as she is, tries to kill herself, and then she has those visions, the seeds, the wool, and the bowl from the Deadlands. When she looks at the, mir the murals, the, the murals are in this sequence. First, she goes to the Deadland, or I'm sorry, she goes to the river to kill herself. She's in despair, and, and um, it's Psyche, and she says, no, don't do it. Um, and then she sorts out the seeds. Then she shows Psyche gathering the wool, and then um, she sees Psyche and herself going over the burning sands. So there are those four visions. The final vision is of Psyche alone, by herself, carrying that casket to the queen of the dead to bring it back. And, when, and she has to go through those ordeals. Okay. Now what do we learn from that sequence, if we've got it right? Is it right? I think so. What do we learn? What do we, why that sequence? 
I think it's important. You said something tonight that kind of triggered what I hadn't been able to form, and it's that she first has to see herself before she can go through things. And the redemption when she's gone through her fire is that she will get the inner beauty from Christ. Oriel doesn't need to have that first, I'm not sorry, Oriel, Psyche doesn't need to have that first event. Yeah, no, doesn't need to have that first event because that is a revelation and turning for Oriel, but Psyche is within herself beautiful and holds Christ within her. But then she sees, Oriel sees her own reactions. Oriel's reactions, yeah. Oriel despairs and then tries to sort things out and then um, has to try to get beauty herself, you know, to mm -hmm. go through that trying to cleanse mm -hmm. herself yeah. and goes through that final ordeal with the trial. The final gift has to come from outside. Oriel can't gather that beauty for herself. She has to work at it. But the gift comes from Christ. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? If we can explain these a little bit more fully. Just one, this is so important, I think. It, it became clear and clear to me as I read it that it's, it's really a, a beautifully set out description of what happens when anybody enters a life of faith. It's really the journey. I mean, it, you could find it in Cloud of Unknowing, all the mystics. Um, it, 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 it follows exactly the same sequence in Dante, if you think about it in the Divine Comedy. Just, just one added thought, I guess. Um, when, when she's with her father, you know, the, the digging becomes harder and harder and harder. Yeah. And for me, that's just kind of a reflection of how hard it is to get to the ultimate inner soul yeah. and face what's there. Yeah. And then you kind of get to the point where, okay, you got two choices. You can just die, give it up, or you can try to, you know, work your way back to redemption. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, it, 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 I keep going back to when the guy told her you will be psyche, or you and psyche. You too will be psyche, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wondered if, if psyche was kind of a reflection of Oriole's soul and what it could be if she was successful in the redemption process. That's there always. Yeah, it's, yes. it's there always. Yes. So then the sequence that you go through is the sorting of the seeds is, okay, now you're, now you're at the depth of your soul and you've got to figure out, okay, what, what needs to get fixed. And then you start that process. Yes. And each, each process, the, the trampling of the ramp, it's like, okay, you get there and you realize you, you're holding all these seeds and you realize just how bad it is and it just kind of overwhelms you. Yep. Uh, yep. But then you get, you get past that and then you start that purification process or that redemption process. And to me, each time when she saw Psyche in the murals, it was a reflection of what she was trying to ultimately achieve. Herself. It, her going. it was yes. what, what she could become. Yes. If she kept yep. working at it. Yep. Yep. And whenever she got to the point of despair, the vision of Psyche there was kind of what 
kept her going to the to the process and and at the end where she's going on the journey to get the casket to get the beauty it's it's ultimately the final purification process and psyche or her inner self is leading her to that yep. ultimate yep. conclusion yeah and so i that's kind of the way i saw it and it's kind of like you know as i've heard you you know we we didn't actually get to sit through the uh, Dante. Dante's. Yeah. But as I've heard you describe it, that's in, a, in essence what's what's happening. You have to go to purgatory first. No, you have to go to hell first. Well, you know, hell. First. You have to see the worst things about you before, before you can you start. Can ever, right. You ever find into Absolutely. Me, yeah. You know, Lewis is kind of doing a reflection of the process that, that yep. I've heard you describe. Yep. It. Yeah. Let me just set that out clearly, and then I want to get to a last question because it, it's a it's a subtle one, but. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to stop because we've got to put all this together. But So the, the sequence is she gets outraged at hearing the story, and she wants to go home and straighten it out. So she writes this charge against the gods. She has two revelations that throw her off and that make her, make her begin to rethink things. It's at that point that she has a dream with her father and that sternness saying, come with me. I mean, and, and it's a sternness I think most people don't like, but it's a serious question in my mind. It reminds me of Cato in the Divine Comedy. If a father is lacking that, do any of us have the strength to go do that by ourselves? If the depths are that great, most of us would want to avoid it. So it's a, it's a telling moment for me. He takes her there, she looks at herself, and she sees how ugly she is. It's at that point she tries to commit suicide, and then... Um, and then she begins the effort of trying to correct herself, to become better. Um, so for me, and I, I, think, I, I think I confused, I, I got this confused last time, but so the sequence of events is that the first two murals, I think, are re reversed of what they are in actual life. And the, the first one on the mural is um, Psyche going to, to take her life, and then the second in is um, um, Psyche trying to sort things out. I think um, it's interesting to me that um, when Oriol sees how ugly she is, she wants to take her life. So she's confronted with despair. And it's only when she faces despair, I think, this is my sense, correct me please, you have a, it's only when she faces that that she has a motive great enough to begin to sort motives out and try to figure them out. And once she does, she finds out how hard that is. No. Because she has, to go, she has to go to depths to do that. Talk with. She does the sorting. Oriel does the sorting before she goes with her father. See, that's what I'm saying. In the, in the actual sequence of events, that's true. In the murals, in the murals it's not. In the murals... She, the first one is suicide, the second one is sorting. And it's interesting to me that, I mean, they're inverted there, so that's interesting. And, and in that sense, it follows Dante because it's, it's not, an, remember, Dante wants to climb that mountain himself. Everybody wants, to, finally, at some point in their lives, we want to go to heaven. What Dante finds when he does that is he can't do it by himself and he's beaten back. He cannot go on without facing his sins. And he can't do that without a guide because if he did that on his own, he would be overwhelmed by despair. So as I, as I look at the murals, it's despair, despair, 
discernment or scrutinizing, self-examination. That, that when, you're, when, when you want to do something and find you can't and you have a reason for taking your life, then you've got a reason for beginning to figure out what's wrong. A reason great enough to make you look at things. And that's when she begins to sort things out. And then she has these dreams about the fleece and the seeds and herbing the, the water. So in a sense, what Lewis is showing us is the, is the nature of what happens to any human when, they, when that person enters the spiritual life. That you're going to reach a point of wanting to be with God. You're going to find how hard it is. You'll despair. When that despair comes, you'll either kill yourself or you begin to look and... Because until that point, you have no reason for turning for help. If you've been doing everything your own way all your life and you're good enough at doing it, why do it? Until you despair and figure out, I can't do it myself. And then you begin to have, you have to look at yourself and figure out what's wrong. And then we have these visions in. Now here's my question. The last two trials show um, Oriol and Psyche, but in Oriol's actual experience and then in the mural, going to the deadland or heading to the deadlands on those burning sands and they're presented as if she was there for a hundred years. And then an eagle comes and gives her the water and she ends up going into the mountain. In the, in the murals, um, they're walking over, the eagle comes, takes the bowl, and brings it back full of the water of death. That's the fourth mural. The fifth mural shows Psyche going into the deadlands to meet the queen of the dead. And we know that that's the hardest one, and she's alone. She even has to face her sister there. And to me, it's interesting. It's feminine. The appeal to pity, the, that feminine voice, the emotional need of it. Um, um, she has to go by her sister. Remember what the greatest temptation for Dante was. Remember what was in the Iliad. It's pity. The, the thing that we're most inclined to do is feel pity. I've defined it before. Pity is the emotion that we feel when we identify with the suffering of another. That means... There's something of ourselves in pity, always. When Psyche undergoes that last trial, she's on her own. She has to go by her sister um, <coughs> to complete the task. Now my question is, what's the difference between those two last trials? The bowl of water from the dead and the casket bringing back um, um, life from the queen of the dead. What's the difference between those two? She has to bring back a casket of beauty. The other one was a bowl of water. A casket of beauty and a bowl of water. What's, what's the difference? What's the difference? Tracy? Jeannie. I'm not following very well. What? I'm not following very well right now. I'm not either. It's a hard thing to follow. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to tell me. Bowl <laughs> <laughs> of water. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for Fred to tell me. Wait. Bowl of water is a symbol of baptism, of rebirth. And then 
if she's having to search for, if she's been struggling with her being unget and being so ugly and that she has to bring about a casket of beauty, that would be the. Why is the last one a greater trial? Everybody agrees it's a greater trial. It's much, psychic, you know, all the other pictures, Oreo looks at her sister as unhappier, you know, not troubled. In this one, it's a pain. She has to bite her lip. She, she has to fight off feeling sympathy, natural human sympathy for the people, for Fox, and for her sister. She's fighting off everything that she loved. She's doing it by herself, or in the other ones, Oreo's helping her. Sorry. She's in... In four, there's four and five. Yeah, and the first one's Oriole's helping her. She's helping bear the anguish. And in this last one, she's having, Psyche's having to stand against everything she did love alone. I explain that. Can you flush that out, son? Every, every one that she has to pass by in the last one was something good in her life. She moved, she loved them. And that's good. But she's having to turn away from them. Because? Because their loves weren't good. They were a temptation. Or if this is an image of Christ in the soul, what is he having to do that Oreo can't do herself? Fred, you had something. Go ahead. Just. Well, for me, that, that point was kind of the slow point. It was the, the, the end of the beginning and, and the beginning of the end in a sense that you, you get to that final point and you ultimately have to leave everything behind which can be painful all the things that kept you from moving on you have to basically leave all that behind and you move into that new experience with Christ and then there's you know then there's a great I'm assuming and I hope I get a chance to see it there's a great moment of, of gladness there, but there's that last, I, I think, moment of pain or ultimate separation where you have to leave all of that behind, and you have to do that alone in the end. And you've got, you've got Christ reaching out to you, and you've got to take the hand and leave everything, leave everything behind. So to me, that was that was kind of what we we talk about when we talk about the still point. It's the final redemption. Anybody else? Candy. I don't know that I can add much. I would say, um, you know, at the very beginning we talked about the, the tension between possessive love, the natural human soul, nat I mean the fallen soul, the, the natural impulse of the fallen soul is selfish, it's possessive. Um, to love for yourself, the image of Christ, the um, um, anima, naturalite, Christiani, the natural, natural human, or the soul of Christ in each human being. It, if, um, if Christ is the image in every human soul, then at the heart of all of us, even though we are beset by this concupiscence, this selfishness, we want things for ourselves, um, is that that's something we can't do. I, I was trying to find the passage. Remember that passage where she begins to sort things out and she refers to Socrates dying to herself? She, she, she tries to put into practice what she learned from Socrates, that she has to die to herself. It seems to me what goes on in that fourth 
mural is that, that she's learning to die to herself. And it's during that period, you remember, that she makes all those judgments that everybody praises her for, even though spiritually she's almost dead, because she's learning to put herself away so she doesn't have the passion or feeling or feel good. or um, And yet everybody says she has a wisdom that was exceptional. I think that's that period where she's learning to die to herself as much as she is capable of doing it herself. But it's not complete. That there's no way any of us can do this because it takes a divine being to do that. And so I think what we have in the last one is an image of Christ um, doing what Oriol can. That ultimate beauty rests on him. So if, if I, when Suzanne and I were coming home from Mass this morning, I was asking her to put, have what she thought about the whole course because I was thinking she, she heard me as talking about um, Tulia faces and her words were, she said, um, as she put it, she said it's a, um, what's that word, the phrase you use, a guard, what's the? Cautionary. Caution, do you want to say it, Doc, what you no. said? You go ahead. No. <laughs> Be gracious. <laughs> she said, she said, I mean, she was right on. She said, it's such a cautionary tale. She says, no matter no matter how much she tries to put herself away, there's always still something of her. And, and it's true, you know, I, I'm assuming all of us know this, that so often we can gratify ourselves by thinking we've done something good. Um, how often do we do those good things without realizing there's still something of ourselves? I, I gave this difference, the distinction between the contemplative life and the practical. The one of the dangers in the practical life is that we always need another, an object on whom to give, so there's always a danger when we help other people of doing it for ourselves. There's an element of selfishness that always... It put, it, put it next to Christ's word, love our enemies, do that, you know. To, to, he's always asking us to do something to die to ourselves. Unless you die, unless you drink of this blood, you know, that, that's partaking of a divine life because it's really clear we have we are incapable of loving the way he, he does. I, I said that before, we have two wounds. We're wounded by concupiscence, we're wounded by Christ. I, I can't believe any of us haven't struggled with our own sins and realized how hard it is to love the way he did. Just can't be done, it's a divine love. So, so as I read those last two episodes, it's, it's in the last one we see Oriol participating in death in a Socratic way, trying to die. But in the last one, we have an image of Christ in the soul, what is possible in her soul. Remember, Psyche's a sister, but allegorically she's an image of the Christ in her soul, what she could be. And what she learns there is that um, he was doing this for her. He's bringing to her a love she's incapable of living herself. She needs him for that. And when that happens, and the two of them stand over the pond, they both look down and Oriole sees that she's beautiful. It's a stunning moment. You know, I mean, think of the mercy involved in a moment like that when you realize that, that you share that radiance with Christ, that same kind of goodness. So, so um, and we know how it ends. Um, and, and it's interesting that it ends with those words. It's, <laughs> I'm going to 
it's as if there's something still mortal, mortal in her. She wants to keep using words, and then she's, you know, when she has nothing to say. I mean, what can, till we have faces, we won't be who we are until we're like Christ. Um, clearly, she's approached that at the end, and I, I, to me, it's sort of funny. She still wants to talk. <laughs> she's writing. Um, it's like Lewis is saying, there's always a little bit of our mortality still hanging on. Yeah. Any thoughts or comments? Wonderful book, isn't it? Come on, Mark. This, this, this will be our last night together, so to conclude this night, I'm going to end with a prayer, and you all know why. Okay, let me do this. Let me do this. Let me give a quick, a couple of major points here. Where is Christ? Where is he? Where is he? There's two, a couple of main thoughts that I'd like everybody to hold on to. I'm going to run through this, sorry, but it's a good way to try to pull everything together at the end. But. The reason for doing these works is to show that Christ is always present even when we don't see him. That he was even present for a pagan world before he came into the world um, when pagans didn't even know anything about him. Um, one of the reasons that early literature is so stunning to me is that they're so prophetic of him. This is before he came. They're much closer to Christ than we are today in a secular world that doesn't believe that there's a God. They believed in a God. The modern world doesn't. So in lots of ways, they were much closer in, in, their, um, in their intuitions about Christ than people today in some ways. But we know he's here today. He's always been here. So, Quick review. The Iliad. In some ways, Achilles is a prefiguration of Christ because in that whole war epic, men are killing each other because of a, of a flawed sense of honor. You know that they use honor. They see honor as a way of affirming their own dignity. So the way to affirm that is to get one up on other people. I've made this point hundreds of times probably in our time together. In my mind, it's no different than our commercial competitive world today. We, we try to step over people. We want to advance. We want to get better. We want to have more money without realizing how often we step over people and when we do are we even aware that we use people, that they become objects? That's the central theme of the Iliad. Men use other men as objects. They use women as objects. Achilles steps outside of that, and the cost of it is the death of Patroclus, and when Patroclus dies, Achilles has to admit he was wrong. And think about it, there's no way he could have done anything else after the beginning. He had to, he had to withdraw from that war. Um, once he admits his fault um, and he accepts death, he goes back into the war and nobody can stop him. Um, imagine what happens to a man or a woman after that moment when they accept their own death. What do they have to be afraid of? There's nothing more to fear. Whatever happens to us is going to happen. He, he fights with a freedom that he never had before. Nobody could stop him. A couple of things to remember. 
Every one of these epics that, that I'm going to mention around, every one of them ends with the parousia action. The return of the king, the parousia. That's the church's word. It, it's a word describing our awareness that a, that a time will come when Christ will return bringing judgment. The parousia, <coughs> the return of the king. Every one of the ancient epics ended with a parousia action. How did they do that? How in the world could they have known that? They had to some, have some intimation of this greatness in, in our human nature. And don't ever forget, I mean, everybody, Christ took on our human nature. That's how great it was. Why would a God have come down to do that if there wasn't something good there? It was his creation. So everything about Christianity affirms our human nature. When Achilles returns to battle, nobody can stop him. A couple of things happen. One is when he returns to battle, it brings all of the other gods in, and in that moment, Homer describes it as a psychomachia, a, a, a war of the inner psyche. The gods come in, nature's dislocated, the graves open, the sky is shattering everywhere. It's exactly like that moment when Christ goes to the cross. It's a conversion moment. Nobody can stop him. And he's bringing judgment. The return of the king, he comes back into battle. Is that an accident? The, Lines up with Christianity, am I? Same thing in the Odyssey. So where is Christ? I think we have intimations of Christ in Achilles. Modern scholars would be scandalized that I would say something like that, because <laughs> lots of moderns hate Achilles. Um, I think I think he's extraordinary. The Odyssey is about disordered marriages. Um, Menelaus and Paris's marriage, they're, they're good marriages, but they're, they both live in the past, in the wounds of the past. Heck, um, Nestor and his wife live in the, Hector, when, when, sorry, Nestor. When guests come to Nestor's home, he does nothing but talk about old battles. He can't get out of the past. So in both marriages, they're stuck in the past. Everything that's happened with Odysseus is bringing he and Penelope closer to a moment when the two of them will step out of the past into a timeless moment and make love together at the end. When that moment happens, Athena stops time. They're out of that epic action. They know a joy that nobody in that, in that epic knows. Remember, we talked about this, the most important theme defining all these ancient epics is a founding. It's a refounding. I set up that timeline at the very beginning. Accident? If you look at the biblical tradition from the time of Abraham down, everything that's going on has to do with the founding of a people. Abraham's called out. Hmm? Isaac, Jacob, um, Moses, the 12 tribes. They all line up exactly with what's going on in the epics. A founding, a new founding, a refounding. Um, and over and over again, the Jews keep looking for somebody and they mistake him. How many people in the Iliad understand that Achilles is the hero of that? All the men care about is their, their booty. In the Odyssey, how many, how, many people in, how many people in Homer's world, Greek world, understood the Odyssey and all that it offers for the possibility of a marriage? I would say the Greek world didn't know it. Why? Because they weren't good readers of poetry. The poets always come to show a people something they don't see very well. How does the Odyssey end? It ends with Achilles, or I mean, Odysseus and Penelope in bed, 
making love, and Athena, Athena stops time. It's a new husband and wife. There's not another marriage, there's not another sexual relationship like that in the whole of the Iliad or the Odyssey. Here's how the book of Revelation ends. Put these two things together. I love this passage. It's one of the most extraordinary passages about the city in all of literature. This is the very end of Revelation. Get this. I've been talking about a founding. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. It ends, remember, Christ sends an angel to, to, um, to speak to the people. He said, Tell them, Behold, I make all things new. What is every epic about? A renewal, a new founding, something the gods are bringing to a people to help them answer a disorder. Um, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Here's how it ends. Um, Jesus comes. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let who, him who is thirsty come, let him who desires take the water of life without price. The spirit and the bride say, come. It, it ends on a note of matrimony. Christ is calling the church his bride. Um, and everybody to enter into that. One of the major motifs, you know, running through the Bible is um, Christ, Christ as the, the grooms of the bride, his church. But um, it changed the nature of our sexual, uh, the understanding of our sexual nature with each other, what marriage is. How does the Odyssey end? With Odysseus and Penelope stepping outside of time um, with a new kind of marriage, a new way of looking at each other. Um, one of the fundamental notes in the, the, um, the ceremony at Cana starts Christ's ministry. All the, all the allusions to um, the church as his bride. So the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the, and the Odyssey ends with the Prusi action. Odysseus returns as a king and he kills the suitors and hangs the maidservants. Everybody that's betrayed, tried to destroy the home. The Aeneid, the whole of the Aeneid is about founding a new city a city in which all people can come together. It was unheard of, because what existed in the ancient world were tribal identities, <coughs> was people's tribal nature that separated them and kept them at war. We saw the cost of that, Aeneas was always at war, and when he gets to Italy, he has to engage in all those civil battles with people wanting to kill each other because they represent different tribes. What's he doing? Trying to bring them together into a city in which all people could live together. The Prusi action again. A hero, a, the return of the king, bringing judgment. How did that happen? The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad, and Christ about to come. <coughs> it's amazing. So it seems to me we see Christ here before he even came. 
we had glimpses of him. The ancient poets had somehow had intimations of him. When we get the Divine Comedy, he's already come. If you look at all the ancient epics, they all take place in a distant past, an idealized past, a former past, all of them. So each one of the heroes of the ancient epic belongs to a past. It's already gone. Dante radically changes all of that. He doesn't, he doesn't write the epic in the ancient languages, Roman Greek, which is what they were written in before. He writes it in the vernacular, in what was then modern Italian. And he took himself as the hero. So he brought the epic action into the present. And you know um, um, that, that the epic begins with Dante wanting to go to this mountain. He wants to go to the sun. This is longing of the immortality of so much to be with God. He starts to go up that mountain and is immediately beaten back by those beasts. Virgil, a pagan, comes to help him. And he says, you can't go up. You have to go down. You can say that's Oriole's father. It's the dad saying, get real. <laughs> how, how are you going to go up without knowing who you are? He takes him to the depths of hell and he shows him every, every conceivable horror in the human soul. Dante's saying, unless we look at ourselves as we really are, we will never be fully saved. So he goes down in the purgatory. Two things just to recall in light of this. The interesting thing is that Dante takes himself as the hero, and you know in the church, at, when he gets to the top of purgatory, he's crowned. Virgil puts the mitre on him. I crown you priest, prophet, king. He's all of those. Priest, prophet, king. Now he's ready to go into the heavens. Um, Dante's, I've, I've taken the position that Dante's Divine Comedy is prophetic because the commercial, the prototype of the modern commercial regime begins then. His view, his, the whole Commedia lays bare the, the modern commercial republic. It's motivated by envy and pride. People want to get ahead, they want to be better, they want to be wealthier, they want to have money, security. They do everything they can to get a hold of things. They do everything they can except try to be better people. And we see the results of it everywhere in the Commedia. Dante's critique, he, by the time we get to Purgatory, we know it. When the souls come from this world, they're leaving Egypt. So Dante's view of the modern commercial city is that it's Egypt. We either come out of it or we're staying back in. So it's a very prophetic work. Um, that's the first thing. The second is, remember that as he goes up the Paradiso with Beatrice, level after level after level, the two of them are in exchanges and Beatrice is constantly reading his mind because what begins to take place is the kind of indwelling that takes place in love. But she already knows what he's thinking before because as they approach God and the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity is indwelling. They indwell in each other. So that as they approach God, there's an indwelling between them. It's a different kind of communion, an exchange. Um, they're a part of each other and they become a part of all the other souls in, the, in paradise. <coughs> um, Shakespeare's treatment of the commercial regime is mm, not any less forgiving. We saw in Merchant of Venice that the commercial regime is hor it's inhuman. Um, they have, all, the, all the good people have to leave and go back to Belmont because to stay in Venice 
is to commit yourself to a life that's going to be fatal. Remember, the, the fundamental problem is Antonio and Shylock make that bond. Um, his ships don't come in. Shylock claims his bond. If they forgive it, nobody will be willing to enter into contracts anymore because the law is no good. If they hold to it, Antonio is dead. So either way, the commercial regime is restored. It's a, it's a, it's a regime given to laws and contracts and vindictiveness and competitiveness. Um, and we saw the tragic effect of it in Othello. We saw that the, the Shakespeare's treatment. There's no person in all of Shakespeare's works more evil than Iago. And the commercial republic is a berry picking ground for him. He can do as he wants. He, 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 he exploits everybody. He has a power over everybody that nobody, just nobody is aware of. So Shakespeare's showing that even though the commercial regime produces the greatest material wealth, it's the one regime that's most inimical to love. But evil seems to be able to, to do more harm in that regime than any other regime. Um, um, I, I look at Portia as a Christ figure. Um, I look at Desdemona as a Christ figure. You can make the argument. I, I would. I, I know lots of people would disagree. I think there's even something Christ-like in Othello when he takes his life at the end. Um, Winter's Tale, I'm not going to go through that, but Hermione and Paulina, to me, are two of the most extraordinary women in all of Shakespeare's works. Um, Hermione has to suffer the loss of her son and what she thinks is her husband. And Pauline is the one who works that. She said, you know, the gods say not um, um, Leontes will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Paulina takes out on faith. So she waits 16 years. An extraordinary woman. All the lords are pressuring her, telling her to let Leontes marry, and she won't do that. She, she just holds herself. She does what he didn't do as a ruler. And 16 years elapse, and the daughter comes and everybody's reconciled. So to me, it's one of the most extraordinary examples of faith. And, it, it, and it's two women. And Paulina not only saw her mistress, Hermione, lose her son, she's seen Leontes, the husband, do horrible things. One of the horrible things he did lost, led to the death of her own husband, Antigonus. Paulina lost her husband. There's nothing grudging. She forgave him. She's an extraordinary woman, extraordinary. Two of the most extraordinary women I've ever known in literature. Moby Dick, you know that I, I've seen it as a Melville exercising Protestant demons, this Calvinistic notion of predestination. It's what Ahab fights against. Ahab wants to strike back at this evil because he's been wounded, and everybody in that ship joins him. It, it shows the universality of wounds. All of us grow up with wounds. The question is, what will we do with them? Ahab's answer is to strike back and kill it. Ishmael gradually dissociates himself from that and learns to love. He finds goodness everywhere in a creation where Ahab can only see evil. So he's a Christ-like figure. Um, go down Moses, you know what happens. Ike reaches that point where he discovers that his grandfather committed these horrible sins and he, he renounces his land. I think that's a Christ-like act. He gives up everything. It's his answer to the sin. And two, we have faces. We saw it. Um, if, if we go back to the beginning, 
and put all of the literature together, we can see that artists are becoming more and more aware of the depth of some grace operating in the soul of man. And it seems that we, we have one of the most beautiful images of that in Psyche. She's an image of Christ at work in every human soul. Whatever our burdens, whatever our struggles, he's not just out there, he's inside bearing something for us. Um, think, oh, I forgot me. You already know how much I love me. He's a killer, and I, 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 I believe that there is crisis working in him. And, and by the way, just remember, Ratliff, Ratliff, Gavin, Gowan are images of Christ trying to help a community begin to take responsibility for evil. What, we, what Faulkner lays bare is that respectability is, is enabling. To grow up in a respectable world is to make compromises everywhere and concede to evil. Um, what he does with um, Ratliff, Gavin, and Gowan, and then with Mink, he showed in the mansion, it's really here, God is at work helping to answer this evil that humans by themselves seem incapable of dealing with. So over and over and over again, everywhere we've been looking, he's been, he's everywhere around us, around us, inside of us, at work. So let me stop. Any questions or comments or... Yeah, you didn't. You didn't have the town on there, or the village on there. The hamlet. Yeah. Yeah, I'm running out of time, Marcy. I, was, I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of here. After after C.S. Lewis's until we have faces, I have a question. Is the reason that Rat is the reason that Ratlow and Gavin were unable to overcome evil? They're good. Is that boss. there was no Christ? present there to bring them through the final yeah. extraction. <laughs> you know, and, and I know how I, I, I hesitate to bring up me. But but there was an implication there that there was something bigger than you know, in me. In me. Yeah. Whereas in Gavin, Because he this other the, the, Gavin, this day and yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, for that's such a hard if any of you seen that um, um, Dragon Girl trilogy? Girl with the dragon yeah. In the American, in the American rewriting of it, there's the scene where the good guy goes to the house of the bad guy, and he hears his car coming, and he runs off, and he stops when the guy calls to him, and he, he actually puts himself in a fatal position. And the guy, the evil guy's response is, "It's really interesting. How did you put it?" how susceptible people are to courtesies, how crippling they can be. My answer to your question is, I don't, Joan of Arc would have never bound herself to respectability, codes of respectability. You know from our read, if we go back to Moby Dick, and that the, the world that Ishmael leaves, it's respectable, it's dying, Christianity. Saints are the ones who hold themselves to a higher standard. So when an issue comes up where they're forced with doing something respectable, when people might not like them, or doing what seems bad, they won't let respectability stop them. And the cost of that may be martyrdom, but they're the ones who image Christ. Um, 
So my answer is that there's in some ways in which civilization has made us tepid. I don't think it's reduced evils because the evils in our age are extraordinary. But it's made people more frightened to act on their own, to be with Christ or to step out of that world. So they don't have the courage to do awful things. I think because it, they see themselves as being charged with not being nice. And nobody wants not to be liked. So it, it, it cultivates a kind of cowardice, a timidness that the saints don't have. Well, what do you all think? Should we? This is it. You guys want to get together in the fall? I hope. I hope. I will miss you guys. I'm saying that. I only prayed for you a lot. I will miss you guys a lot. I hope, I hope we'll see you all at the potluck in a couple of weeks. Okay? Thank you all for Let us know when Paradise I will. I will. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Yeah.